0: is a staff writer for The Atlantic and our second repeat guest on the show. We are absolutely thrilled to have you back, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about politics, fandom, and of course, football. Thank you for having me. So how are you holding up in Brooklyn right now?
1: Uh, I'm doing okay. We had, we had sort of a momentary hurricane of some sort come through uh, Brooklyn like an hour ago, uh, but it's
0: done. <laughs> oh, we, we, you know, we had that in Philly. It must've been the same thing. Like we had this like freak storm for like 20 minutes where like the trees were going nuts. And I was telling him that like, we had this storm. I don't know how my connection's going to be. So maybe it was the same thing.
1: Yeah, it probably was. It was like this very thin, long line of thunderstorms that just like blew right over us. Um, so it, it was probably the, about the same thing. Uh, but yeah, it was very thin. So it, it rained and like sleeted for uh you know 10 minutes and, and now we're good i was i was worried that it was going to keep going through this and that it would pick up on the audio <laughs> hmm.
0: and so sort of how are they how have things been up there like since the election and all that stuff happened uh
1: things have been okay i would say like it rained a lot last week so i, I think most people were just sort of inside chilling. um Covid cases are going up here, uh, like they are pretty much everywhere. And and I think that based on my experiences going out this weekend to the grocery store and, and things like that, it seems like people are trying to be a little bit more conservative with their movements and with their uh, with their outside of the house plans. So uh, things are pretty quiet here. Um, but the the immediate aftermath of the election was pretty fun. A lot of celebrations, a lot of uh, music in the streets, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and so kind of building off of that, let's start with the election. So, how are you processing recent events? For example, Trump, his reaction to the election, of course, Biden and the fascism debate, and really all the truly absurd and also incredibly high stakes that we are all constantly being assailed by.
1: Um, that's a great question. I. I. I'm sort of not processing it. <laughs> I think uh, I, uh, although I think that what the what Trump and the administration is doing with undermining the uh, you know undermining confidence in the results, undermining confidence in the uh, system of elections is dangerous. I, I don't think he's making a very spirited effort to actually. Pull the levers of power that would be required in order for him to maintain office. Um, That doesn't seem to be the point of what he's doing, uh, or the strategy that that ultimately is is being employed here, uh, which is both uh, reassuring in the short term, but but worrying in the long term. I think. Um, So I have somewhat, I think, disengaged emotionally from that process because uh, I I sort, I guess, I feel confident in my understanding of of whats what they're trying to make happen here and how it's happening. And, um, and I guess I'm just waiting for it to be done.
2: <laughs> totally, totally makes sense. I mean, I think that most of us are in that kind of place. Um, but of course, it's not actually the end because uh, in a place that's sort of particularly close to home for you, quite literally, uh, Georgia, we're kind of just beginning. It sort of seems uh, what will probably be two months of kind of nonstop peach state Discussion, political discussion, and it's to me, it's a pretty, particularly interesting question for us to to talk through here because it it also intersects with something that you've been talking a lot about um, on Twitter and so forth, and I've been thinking about it in your writing, which is sort of the pandemic, right, and the political implications of the pandemic because we have this open question still, really, of how, as 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 you've pointed out, right, uh, when you're talking about New York. You know, the hospitalizations are way up. We're in severe danger across this country right now. We're returning essentially to the March-April period. Uh, that's that's It's not an exaggeration to say that's where we're at. Um, the hospitals are being overrun in certain parts of the country already. And that's two weeks behind the kind of cataclysmic situation that we're determ- that, that's been revealed through testing. So, you know, two weeks from now, it's going to be way worse. And those hospitals are already overrun. And the only solution, as you have pointed out, the only solution to this, uh, and I I couldn't agree with you more. The only solution is paying people to stay home, right? Paying businesses to close so that we can all survive together um, and emerge, hopefully, intact at the end of this process. But, of course, the Senate has... Absolutely under McConnell's leadership, et cetera, has completely refused to address this issue in any way, shape, or form. And the election of Biden, you know, of course, you know, Trump's regime is making it difficult for them to transition. So they're not able to put in place their task force, whatever. They don't get the briefings that they need to get. But it's not just that. It's also the question of the fact that they really need the Senate to make the most impactful interventions that are going to be necessary to help people in the way that you've described. And that brings us to Georgia, because. What's sort of weird about this is the presidential election should have been about this exact issue, but it wasn't. It was like a referendum. I mean, thanks to the Democrats and their total refusal to be substantive, it was a referendum on Trump, essentially. Right. But now we have this moment where our ability to survive this pandemic hinges on what happens in the Senate. And we have essentially an election for the Senate, right? Two seats in Georgia that will determine everything in the Senate. And that's the entire focus. There's no more Trump piece to it, really. It's all about this. And one might think under those circumstances that if you were the Democrats, you might consider making the Senate the campaign in Georgia about paying people to stay home. Something that might actually be kind of appealing. Uh, in an election where you know the odds are perhaps stacked against them, but we haven't seen anything like that whatsoever, which is driving me out of my mind. Uh, basically, I'd, I just I'd love to hear from you about sort of how you see the state as it's been unfolding, how, how amazing it is that it flipped blue in the election, and, and how you understand sort of the stakes yeah, of that the, election. Uh,
1: the issue of Georgia is, is obviously very near and dear to my heart, um, and. The, the flipping of Georgia is one of those things where it was like for so long, for decades, it was bit by bit. And then it was all at once. Um, the, uh, the, the push to, to turn Georgia blue has been ongoing in community organizing uh, in the state for, for a very long time. It got uh, a big push um, after the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia uh, from Stacey Abrams uh, and her, her organization uh, helped, helped definitely push things over the finish line. Uh, and so it's, it, it's a, it, it was a, a very long process that, ha- that I don't think you can really pin to, to uh, one organization, one person, one phenomenon. Uh, but just, I, I, I have been a proponent of the idea for a while that Georgia is a microcosm of the country. Um, it's, it's a very complicated state with a lot of, uh, a lot of different conflicts within it, a lot of different types of people within it. Um, so it, it, the, the process of turning Georgia blue is something that I hope Democrats will, will learn from and take seriously and, uh, and apply the lessons of it to other states. Um, I don't know exactly how much. Confidence I have in the National Party doing that, Um, uh, because Georgia has a big has a big advantage over over much of the South. The state is pretty rich, um, as opposed to states with lower populations and and without a a major city like Atlanta in them. Um, So you uh, you end up with organizations within the state that that can attract the resources necessary to do the type of organizing that gets people to the polls, that gets people registered. Uh, cause registration is a huge, um, is a huge, uh, hurdle in, in voting in this country. And, um, but it's hard to replicate that with just grassroots organization elsewhere. You need, you need solidarity among states. You need solidarity, uh, between richer states and poorer states. Uh, and you need hopefully some sort of overarching organization that can help coordinate that, um, so, uh, so looking forward, I am, I'm interested to see if, because I mean, the Democrats don't invest in the South at all. They haven't for decades. Um, so there's, there's very little structure on the ground in order to mobilize voters. There's very little structure to, um, to make a coherent pitch to, to people who have never voted Democrat before or who are new voters overall. Uh, and that's, I think a problem for the Democrats in much of the country, but it's a very... Uh, So it's a really severe problem in the South because you, you lack the uh, on the ground organization that traditional democratic strongholds have Uh, and you lack the funds going through the party. So you, you rely a lot on grassroots. Um, And I I think I, at this point do not have strong feelings about how the Senate, um, the Senate race is going to go. I think it hinges a lot on whether or not Democrats can present a coherent Vision of the future to voters. I think that if they if they can pin their their message on practical things, on paying people to stay home, on you know a a you know a, a fifteen dollar or in my opinion it should be more than $15, but a $15 minimum wage, a, you know, the, the types of, the types of policies that, that it's easy to explain to voters how they will impact their lives and make their lives better immediately. Um, there's, there's no reason the Democrats shouldn't have a, um, a monopoly on those policies. Um, whether or not they're willing to state them plainly or whether they're going to be consultants about it is, is like the, the big question of Democrats in general, I think in the, in the near future. Um, the, I think the, the matchups in, in Georgia are interesting. Uh, it's not understand it. Like from, I, I've talked to a lot of people in the state over the past, past year. And as I understand it, Kelly Loeffler is not super well liked, uh, you know, she was not elected in the first place. She was appointed and, and she's just a weird candidate because she's so rich and she's, you know, um, she's sort of a thing that exists outside of what you might consider normal life in Georgia. (laughs) Um, which I think always makes a candidate sort of weird if you can't imagine them in the context of the state in some way. Um, And uh, but then the other the other race, John Ossoff ran in my old home district uh, in a special election in 2017 and got creamed. Um, The Democrats nationally had put a lot of money into his into his campaign, too. And I one of the criticisms I've read of of the of the National Party recently in the aftermath of the election is that they put too much money in single candidates and not enough money in creating a structure within a state or to uh, creating a structure to get in front of people in between elections, to familiarize people with with themselves, uh, with the party and with what, what the party stands for between elections. And I think that that was a major problem in that special election. Um, and that we, they poured a lot of money into Ossoff, but, um, but they they didn't have the structure to support what they were trying to do. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they have that if they have that structure now, and if they can uh, if they can tie these votes and getting out the vote in the middle of a worsening pandemic that will almost certainly be worse by the time it's time to vote uh, to a uh, to that vision of the future and that that desire to to change things and improve things uh, quickly.
0: Thanks so much for like really giving us such like fine grain detail because I I feel like there are a lot of hot takes about Georgia on the internet right now. And so it's it's sort of it's really helpful to kind of get your sense of sort of like what the broad base campaign, I mean that Stacey Abrams, but sort of others have been working on. And and as someone who lived in Florida for a decade and, you know, had like at least some hopes that Florida would maybe put up a I don't want to say a better fight because so many people are disenfranchised, but you know, I was hoping that they would it would at least be a little bit closer than it was. But I've seen a lot of people who are like labor historians and and have been um, really active in labor and, and political organizing in Florida for a long time and sort of them talking on social media about how like talking about how clearly, you know, Abrams tactics work and like we need to implement what she's doing here and all this stuff. So. I mean, my fingers are crossed that maybe people will sort of like learn and like really, obviously really respect, but um, really um, think very highly of sort of what she did. And hopefully, if not mimic, I, I like what you said about sort of like interconnecting these interests across states rather than sort of like limited to like a state by state sort of process to get the vote out and get people registered and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that her that Stacey Abrams' efforts in registration were really important because you saw it in a lot of places across the country that even as uh you know even as the pandemic wore on and the Trump campaign did worse and worse and worse, you saw uh, lots of states, Republicans outpaced Democrats and new voter registrations. Uh, it, when, you, when you have that happening, and it was happening by really big margins in a lot of really key states. I think in Arizona it happened, uh, in Texas, uh, if I remember correctly, and when you when you have that happening, like that's a that's a really clear symptom that that one party's ground game is going a lot better than the other parties, uh, and and to to make up margin in a in a situation like this where uh, the the candidates are really well known to the populace, you, you don't have a lot of people who are unfamiliar with Donald Trump, who are unfamiliar with Joe Biden, um, you. I think you need to register new voters if you're going to move the needle at all. Um, so you saw in a lot of places, you know, over the past year and something that made me really worried going into election day, but that Republicans were, were out registering new voters. Uh, and I think that in Georgia, the Stacey Abrams organization and everything that it poured into registration into getting Democrats registered, uh, really helped make the difference. Uh, in, in, in a way that uh, that other states can replicate if they can get the resources if they can do the outreach, uh, if they can follow some of those lessons, follow the template that she created um, then I, I think that you that you have opportunities where maybe you didn't
0: realize they were before. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And so to kind of pick up on some of what you just said, I mean, there is this really fascinating sport angle, which you mentioned because of Kelly Loeffler um, as co-owner of the WNBA's Atlanta Dream. Um, and in case listeners don't know, um, in July this past summer, 2020, uh, Leffler wrote a letter to the league commissioner condemning the league's very visible support for Black Lives Matter. And instead, she advocated the, the American flag be included on team jerseys. And um, really powerfully in response, the team called for her publicly to be removed of her ownership stake and actively campaigned for her opponent in the election, a Reverend Warnock, and did this pretty immediately, Um, which isn't surprising considering the WNBA's like history of of political activism and sort of athlete activism. But it really uh, was really such a huge moment this summer. Um, And so we're wondering, uh, to what extent have you been following this situation? And do you have any thoughts and how significant the dreams efforts may possibly have been, in the campaign and the campaign to date, and may continue to be moving forward. Um, and in all honesty, you know, it sort of strikes us that this may have been one of the most directly influential political inventions, political interventions, an athlete or group of athletes um, has made from an electoral standpoint.
1: Yeah, I think that the, that the issue of Kelly Loeffler and the Atlanta Dream is, is an interesting one. Uh, I think that, my, I mean, my read of the situation as someone who was watching it on the outside and who knows a little bit about the dynamics at play is that Kelly Loeffler was not someone who was beloved by the uh, Republican base in Georgia. She didn't have much of a, she was not a super known quantity. She didn't have like the culture war credentials that a lot of the Republicans that have been super, uh, super effective and super, uh, super popular under Trump have, have had. So I, I think the Atlanta dream situation was an opportunity for her to sort of seize on a culture war thing and put herself at the center of it, um, and make herself look like a little bit of a victim. Um, and that sort of like, uh, the idea of making yourself a victim, I think it, 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 a victim of, you know, cultural changes or social justice warriors is extremely popular among conservatives. So, uh, so I think that that probably helped her up with the base, at least a little bit, uh, because it gave her an opportunity to, to act like a Trump person um, rather than just acting like a corporate person. Uh, which I think is more of her background. Um, so I think that that gave her an opportunity, but it, but it also gave uh, the athletes on her team an, an opportunity to, to react against that. And they acted with uh, much more purpose and much more specificity. And uh, I, I think more bravery than, than a lot of their male counterparts had. Uh, definitely we, we saw over the summer a lot of male athletes doing doing really brave things and uh, sort of putting their neck out a little bit in a way that uh, in a way that professional athletes haven't in you know in the past few decades uh, but I think that the, the the players on the dream you know took it to to an extreme that I, I think a lot of progressive fans are hoping athletes will take it to, uh, because just saying to, you know, just encouraging people to vote or just encouraging people to, to speak out about injustice and things like that gets a little bit toast. It's a little bit vague. Um, so I think that the specificity, like I said, with which the, the Atlanta dreams players came out and, uh, and repudiated their owner, uh, and that, that they were, that they were going to war basically against their owner and not against a politician, uh, who was unconnected from the team, I, I think is commendable. And, uh, and you know, they're not millionaires like their male counterparts are. Uh, so there's, there's, uh, the financial stakes for them are, are a little bit more in line with the financial stakes for, you know, somebody who works in any kind of company, uh, going, going against their boss. Uh, so I, I, I thought that that was one of, one of the more interesting and compelling instances of athlete activism uh, that we saw over the summer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And and so sticking with the issue of sort of how electoral politics and sport intersect and sort of moving to something that we've all been watching extremely closely, you know, over the last year, especially, uh, we'd like to address the role of Big Ten football and the election, and specifically the fact that Trump very explicitly took credit during the first presidential debate for restarting the Big Ten season. Um, And since then, he's obviously lost Pennsylvania, although barely uh, Michigan, Wisconsin and Minnesota, but also handily won Ohio, Nebraska, Iowa and Indiana. Do you think that his stance had any bearing on the election? And if so, what should we make of it?
1: You know, I'm not sure that it did. Um, I think that. I think that people sometimes have the, have the urge to, um, to, to, let's see, how should I say this? <laughs> I, I think that people sometimes ascribe a little too much credulity uh, to Trump fans or to, to Trump voters. I, I think that, that even people inclined to to vote for him could probably look at that situation and go, Ohio State was losing their minds trying to play football. Nebraska was losing their minds trying to play football. It's probably more likely that you know that powerful programs within the conference and the profit motive got them playing football uh, rather than rather than Trump. I don't I don't think that most people who voted for Trump in those States would look at him and go, that's a college football fan. Um, I, I think he's, pretty, <laughs> I think he's pretty plainly <laughs> not, you know, I, I, think that that sort of, uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the big 10 football thing is, has, has been one of the, the more fascinating things to me in, in all of this. And I don't, Maybe I'm giving Trump voters too much credit, but but I think that they can look at the the situation and the culture within their own states and go, yeah, there's enough pressure here to make this happen without him, without his
2: intervention. Yeah, I can see that. And, and just by the way, as a sidebar, I just gotta I gotta express my sub, smug satisfaction in um, what has happened to our friend Jim Harbaugh this season after he publicly protested to get this season launched, even as really, really courageous graduate workers on campus were literally on strike trying to push the university to produce safer working conditions for everyone on campus. Our friend Jim decided that actually what was important was getting college football off the ground. Um, so he made that protest at the exact same time, only to find himself in a season where the team is being so humiliated that he will almost certainly lose his job, maybe not even at the end of it, maybe before the end of the season, it has been so humiliating for Jim. So I just, you know, just wanted to shout out, shout out uh, Michigan right now and <laughs> yeah. how well that's going. Yeah, you you that. have to look at that Um, and
1: go you know jim (laughs) exactly how bad did you want to play football
2: (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly now okay let's speaking of mediocre college football coaches though let's talk about uh our our other friend tommy tuberville uh who tuberville (laughs) oh no i'm sorry i'm sorry thank you for that it looks like it should be tuberville but as a is
1: a real
2: who totally has is. been watching this for so a long time I can say with confidence it's Tuberville uh, oh yeah no I trust you on that 100% uh, <laughs> so listen this this Tuberville has been elected as a senator in Alabama now and recently he received some national attention because of his assertion that World War II was fought to rid France of socialism for one thing which on the surface seems like absurd and hilarious until you realize that actually, like a lot of Americans conservatives, think that the National Socialist Party uh, in Germany, uh, aka the Nazis, were literally actual socialists. And their entire worldview may not like this may not just be bad faith, but actually, like literally a lot of people in the United States may hate socialism because they actually think the Nazis were socialists, which is just that's a sidebar of like a bit of horror I have. Um,
0: yeah, I should, I sorry yeah, to yeah. interject. I have, I always have students who, who get this confused. Like I, like, so it's not, I guess that that part is not at all surprising. I mean, it's horrifying and sad, but like students, you always have to sort of explain to them the difference between communism and fascism, obviously, but like, what is national yeah. socialism I mean, and I mean, how it's not American, socialism. So
1: Americans are yeah. sort of, I think, extremely consistently guilty of being really incurious about history. <laughs> Uh, in general i love <laughs> yeah, history yeah. i i grew up with a dad who read history books for fun um uh, so so i uh it, and yes. so i adopted some of that worldview myself um uh, but i it, it, and the more you learn about history of course after you get out of school the more you realize that like what you learned in high school history class was just like not really it <laughs>
2: Yeah. 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 Yes. Exactly. Really yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, exactly. coming out of the American educational system. If you, if you're not just like mm-hmm. a weirdo who loves to read history books, or uh, you know, if you and if you don't have like a natural curiosity <laughs> about that, which like some people are curious about other stuff, um, you know, you, uh, I can see how a lot of people. Uh, End up thinking that. And when I read that quote by him, I was like, oh, he's not doing this as like a red baiting type thing. He really thinks this. <laughs> oh,
2: man. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's so. And so he, he went on in that, or in the sim- same interview or whatever it was, to um, demonstrate a lack of awareness of the three branches of US government as well, um, uh, noting that they were the executive and then the Senate and the House of Representatives. Well, um, g- given your familiarity with the South, I'm curious how you unpack the phenomenon of college football coach to member of Congress. Now, and I want to say, on the one hand, my friend and former colleague, Peter Pihos, who is uh, now uh, he's a professor of um, history in, uh, at Western Washington University. He rightly noted on Twitter that there is a snobbish intellectualism to a certain degree in disparaging um, Tuberville that fails to acknowledge that much of the harm done in this country's history has been perpetrated by extremely fancy people from extremely fancy institutions, aka the Ivy League. And so, you know, like knowledge of civics, knowledge of national socialists, like that doesn't necessarily correlate to how much harm you may or may not do when in a position of power. But at the same time, for me, the college football coach, I have to say it, is an expert in harm production, if you will. Um, This is not the kind of person I necessarily want to see vested with additional authority, given the high tolerance these folks have for putting people through suffering. Yeah, I, I
1: have a lot of thoughts about this, honestly. And I, I do agree that like, the, an important thing to acknowledge before we talk about any of this is that most of the harm perpetrated in this country, especially in politics, is perpetrated by people with Ivy League degrees in politics or in business or in economics or in, uh, in any of these things. Uh, so I, I am a, a staunch anti-credentialist uh, in, in that way. Uh, with a a proud state school education. (laughs) And, uh, but I also think that football coaches are, especially like big time college football coaches who have been at it for a long time, or perhaps the the category of people least qualified to do anything but coach football. Um, because. (laughs) <laughs> the, uh, I let let any fast food worker go to the Senate before you let anybody who has spent their career coaching college football, as far as I'm concerned, they will do a better job. They have a, a better understanding of, of how life works in America. I would pl- replace almost any of our senators with the average fast food worker, honestly. <laughs> Yeah. I love oh that God. idea. Uh, yes. I love it. Please. Yeah, for much, most most senators, we would be better off if if they were uh, if, if they were just completely different people from a different station of American life. Um, but uh, I, I think that you know, college football coaches are, like I said, especially at that high level, they do and think about nothing but football for you know eighteen hours a day for. Decades and decades and decades. They are, as a group of people, manifestly un- unqualified to do anything else, especially anything that that uh, uh, impacts the lives of lots and lots of people. Um, but I think that when you are dealing with uh, dealing with politicians and dealing with elections, something that's very very hard to come by and that is very useful is name recognition. Um, so. Having having a name that people know, having a name that is uh, that is synonymous with something that people like, whether it's winning football games or you know, Tommy Tuberville is not the is not the best football coach of all time, but uh, but I think a lot of people have somewhat somewhat positive memories about his time at Auburn. Um, and I, I think that you see this this phenomenon replicated elsewhere, where you you know the state of California. Elected Arnold Schwarzenegger to be governor in the not the not so distant past. So if you can if you can find somebody who's already famous in some way, I think that just that name recognition is going to get you pretty far. And then when you look at a state like Alabama, where the the, the national Democratic Party has basically abandoned, uh, they have no resources, they have no structure. the The uh, state party is. Uh, is a, a very interesting uh, study in political inertia. Uh, there is a, a good series of Reply All podcasts about the Alabama Democratic Party from last year that is, that is too complicated uh, to get into now, but is is I think a lesson in in how how things just stay perfectly how they are for a very very long period of time. Uh, so I, I think that the reason they elected Doug. Doug Jones when they did is uh, was because he was facing a, a world historical bad candidate in Roy Moore uh, who a lot of people you know people were looking to repudiate Trump in the midterms anyway and Roy Moore just didn't give them an op- didn't give a lot of people an opportunity to feel good about that Republican vote um, who, who you know might have instead stayed home um, and Tommy Tuberville is uh, not the sharpest tool in the shed, I think, but he, he is not noxious and disgusting and abhorrent in the, in the way that like a pedophile is or, or someone who was who trying to sleep with teenagers as an adult is. Uh, so I, I think that you end up with a lot of people just being like, well, he was coach at Auburn Uh, he's led an organization and I think that it matters too that, you know, college football especially is an authoritarian power structure. It is something in which you, you vest all of your, all of your beliefs and all of your faith in a singularly powerful figure and, uh, and give them your support to, you know, lead you to glory in some way. And I think that Republican voters, uh, you know, show a pretty high tolerance for authoritarianism anyway. So if you're, if you're a group of voters that's already looking for, for someone to, uh, to, you know, put their foot down on people and to get everybody in line that you think is out of line, um, then somebody, then a college football coach actually sort of makes sense in, in a, on a certain level. Uh, if you're, if you have that personality type and you're looking for that personality type in, in a candidate, um, so I, 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 sort of see how it happened. I, the Republicans, I think in order to lose that, that election would have had to run more and more again, uh, just because of like some of the structural problems with the democratic party in the state, um, and the, how the national party thinks about Alabama, uh, which is that it doesn't think about Alabama. <laughs> um and and then you've got someone with right name recognition someone who uh people are used to seeing in a position of authority so i i think that that's how you end up with Senator tommy Tuberville.
2: yeah i totally buy that and honestly for a lot of the same reasons i mean we've i've joked with this other people have joked about this but like it's probably why someday we're going to see Senator Dabo Sweeney, too. Um, you know, I, well, I certainly wouldn't be shocked by that kind of outcome because, you know... so yeah, Senator Davo, I know, and uh, I, I, I hate to see truly, I hate yeah. to see it or contemplate it, but um, I can readily imagine it for a lot of the same reasons in South about yeah, having yeah. in South Carolina. I
1: think, you know, like I said, I think that that someone who people are used to looking at at the top of an authoritarian power structure, someone who has great name recognition and perhaps some happy memories attached to to their name, um, you know, I, I think that in a in a party where the the democrats don't really run much opposition and don't have much structure then you know that's a sort of a layup for the republicans i think
2: that's exactly it layup that's a perfect way of putting it um now listen so i'm thinking you know if we talk about college football college football coaches we also have this sort of question of um the situation with crowds you know and this is something that's you know it should be even more in our minds, given what we sort of were talking about earlier with the, how COVID is playing out right now across the country and the fact that we're getting into these increasing states of lockdown, you know, which, frankly, I'm not unhappy to see. But something that's interesting to me about the question of crowds is sort of what we saw play out um, the Saturday that it was announced that um, that Biden essentially won the election or it was fairly clear that Biden had won the election on that Saturday. That night we saw fans at the, on that same day storm the field at Notre Dame after the football team upset Clemson in their, their big matchup that night. Unsurprisingly, the response of many onlookers to that game or to that, that, that incident was approbation for those fans, right? People were like really disdained the fans for having engaged in that kind of, you know, unmasked uh, free-for-all on the field. Yet, Earlier on the very same day, political celebrants took to the streets across U.S. cities, much as we saw Black Lives Matter protesters do this—the uh, same thing during the summer. I would say, and I mean, I guess what I'm trying to—there's obviously a huge divide in terms of how people read these things from a left-right perspective, and uh, a kind of breakdown along the lines of like how people would have voted in this election. And that's not really what I'm talking about. And um, when I say this, I mean more. The folks who were critical of Clemson were the same sort of people who were not, it's not Clemson, but the the fans at Notre Dame, were the sort of folks who are not critical of the Black Lives Matter protesters and not critical of those political celebrants. Now, my view on this is actually that we shouldn't necessarily be pointing the finger at any of these constituencies of individuals who are understandably seeking emotional relief from some kind of collective engagement, something that people on the left, in my opinion, should understand as a fundamental part of both human experience and the political ethic of collective action. Yet, at the same time, we also really need people to be safe, especially now. We do need to be enforcing distancing, and we probably do need lockdown given how far gone things are. But the key for me is that we need to hold the institutions accountable in this process, like, hint, hint, Notre Dame University and its president, who, by the way, despite chastening the fans for what they did after the game, was actually in attendance applauding uh, that night, right? So we need to hold these institutions accountable, the institutions that produce the conditions for unsafe social relations during a pandemic not the individuals who then have to live within those conditions uh, governed by those institutions. For me, Notre Dame asked for the field storming when they decided to compel athletic workers to labor during a pandemic and to allow fans in the stands to watch. This was the logical outcome of those decisions. I'm curious if you see it the same way, similarly, or maybe have a different read on all that.
1: I I think I agree with you on that. The, The field storming doesn't really bother me. Um, The, we we know, well, we know from the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer that if you are outside, if you're masked up, even if you're in a, a big group of people, um, the, the, you know, the, the odds of transmission are lower than they would be if you were, than if you were unmasked, you know, in, in your dorm with a bunch of other people, um, which a lot of these kids are, um, So there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, ideally you don't end up in a large group of people outside, even if you are masked up screaming, ideally you don't, but I agree with you that Notre Dame set and colleges across the country have set their kids up to have these emotional reactions. If you, if you put players on the field, if you put people in the stands, if you're playing games like normal, force for you know any kind of stakes you are you are winding people up and then telling them not to go off um, and and I, that's just not a logical thing to do it's not a it's not something that you can do and then blame people for having the reaction that you've set them up to have uh, or behaving the way that that all of the conditions of the event encourage them to behave um if you don't want people to storm the field, you can't have fans in the stadium <laughs> that, is, you know, you, you can't expect people to, to cease being human beings and cease looking for collective joy or collective emotional release or, or just a collect any kind of collective emotion. Uh, if you're going to put everybody together and put them in an emotional situation, that it doesn't make any sense. And especially if you're going to put these kids in classrooms, if you're going to put them in dorms, if you're going to put them in dining halls, if you're going to let them go to bars and restaurants, um, it doesn't make sense to do all of that every day and then get mad when they storm the field, which is outside in which a lot of them were wearing masks. Uh, That's just not the most dangerous thing most of them did that week. And the most dangerous thing most of them did that week is probably sanctioned both by the government and the university. Uh
2: Oh, yeah. Well said. Beautifully said. <laughs> um,
1: <fed. laughs> well, and I, I think that people latch on to these things, to the Black Lives Matter protests, to the, the celebrations over the election, to rushing the field in college football, or just people being in the stands in college football in general. I think people look at those things and latch on to them if, you know, and project their horror onto them about uh, potential infections because, the, because they can't see the way that these infections are actually being passed, uh, we know that that happens uh, in private gatherings. It happens within families. It happens uh, in in small groups at small social gatherings. Uh, it happens in, in inside bars and restaurants. So if you're somebody who is, you know, not seeing your friends, not seeing your family, not uh, socializing in other people's homes, not um, not having people in yours, not going inside of restaurants. Uh, The the way that you see people breaking rules that that you have chosen to uh, adhere to is by watching them do stuff like that on TV. So I think that that all of that collective frustration and horror then gets projected on on those displays because they're public, when in reality the, the dangerous things are happening in private they're not happening where you can see them and express your car.
2: Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, just building on that, what you made me think of is actually a conversation I had with my students. We, we had our last class this week and I just, I, the thing I kind of had to end on with them was I, I want to know about their experience this semester, right? Like what it was like um, at, at Duke, they are on campus. Um, but, you know, with like a, many regulations, our class was remote. So I was not on campus with them. And, they, you know, they were all in their respective dorm rooms or whatever um, while we were in class. And one thing that they highlighted, which I thought was a great observation and totally intersects with what you're talking about, was the fact that at times what the university would do was sort of say, look, there's a dangerous situation. For instance, like we, we can't what you said about bars and restaurants, right? Like we can't we can't have people eating in a food court anymore right? And again, this makes sense on the surface, right? Like, oh, yeah, you're right. We shouldn't have people eating in this food court. That's a dangerous environment. But so they literally took away the tables and chairs. But what happens when they take away the tables and chairs? And the students literally told me this. They go off campus to eat in a much more unsafe environment, or they join each other in their dorm rooms to eat, right? Because the university, like all the universities that have students on campus, it's exactly what you said is inviting people to come together and to congregate that is why they are there that's just like they put the when when you invite a fan in the stadium you're inviting them to storm the field when you invite students on campus for university experience you are inviting them to eat lunch together that's part of the deal and the student's point was it's not that we don't agree that you should be trying to protect us you have to find a better way Organize those chairs in a different way, right? But don't just take them away and force us to, you know, go to our own devices. And then what happens is if they get caught right, in that dorm room or if they are caught off campus in a certain way or whatever, then they get in trouble. Um, then they're punished for it by the institution as if it's their fault. So, you know, I, I, I think I think you have a perfect read on that.
1: I think that a lot of what, Especially universities have, and, and to a certain extent, state and federal governments too have decided to do is is set themselves up for plausible deniability, because the university can say like, well, we we don't want people congregating, so we took the tables and chairs out of the dining hall, and then if you congregate anyway, which is the natural human thing to do when eating a meal, uh, that is you know always a collective experience in you know human history. Um, <laughs> if you if you do that then it's your fault and it's your choice and you made a bad decision and we tried to stop you um but like did they or did they just remove their own liability
2: (laughs) exactly exactly that's what it's all about that's it okay i actually want to make sure we get a chance to ask a question that i kind of asked at the end of our last episode with max alvarez and sina romani which i encourage people to check out we were also talking about um political issues there um I asked it but it ended up being kind of a rhetorical question and I want it not to be a rhetorical question here I want it to be a, a real question because it's something I'm I'm really thinking a lot about which is what to make of fandom today in the context of this what you know has been characterized as increasing political polarization now, my contention is that while sports fandom has long functioned as a kind of imagined community, I've said this many times, a com- a com- what I would call a compensatory site of meaning and investment for the degradations and atomization of capitalist life, political identity seems to increasingly be taking on a similar sheen in the US. We have this kind of MAGA versus the resistance, if you will. Um, I would probably also suggest that the underlying causes are the same. People grasp onto something that is clear, simple, and offers hope and fulfillment in the face of incredible complexity and dehumanization. But the question I have is: what happens when these forms of identity collide? The Atlanta baseball fan is supposed to be able to sit next to a fellow fan and assume some form of fundamental commonality, right? Like that's that's the imagined community. That's the kind of benefit that they get, this sort of sense of collectivity. That's what makes the imagined community work. But what happens when those two fans of the same team are at the same time red and blue? Does sports fandom break down? Does political identity break down? How do these things get reconciled? I I really wonder this right now. I cannot imagine the MAGA fan and the Resistance fan high-fiving right now.
0: Yeah,
1: I I think this is an important dynamic that you're gesturing toward here. Uh, And I, I think that this is sort of like the the logical extreme of Stan culture where, uh, where you sort of choose, you know, a movie franchise or a singer or a politician or uh, something like that and sort of integrate it in very explicitly into your sense of self, into your identity, into your worldview. Um, So you you end up, and it is a that search for commonality. That is a search for, uh, for collective meaning uh, for community in, in a culture that is increasingly atomized, that is increasingly, uh, devoid of community in the traditional senses, uh, because of the, like you said, the atomization of capitalism. Um, so you, so you end up sort of hinging your entire sense of self and your sense of purpose in the world on, uh on politicians now. And I, I think that that really does complicate, uh, other types of fandom. And and I think that we should have seen this coming when the, when the baseball hats, the MAGA baseball hats became a symbol, uh, because I, you know, as as someone who, who has long rooted for a team that wears red hats, um, I know that, that I, and a lot of, and a lot of people I know became uncomfortable wearing our Georgia hats because, you know, from, from a distance, it's just a red hat. And we, we know what a red hat means in America right now. Um, and, and you don't want, you don't want to make people uncomfortable. You don't want to make people, uh, give the, you don't want to give the wrong impression of yourself to people. So I, you know, I stopped wearing the red hats. Um, I was never a big hat person anyway, so it wasn't, it wasn't a big sacrifice for me. Um. But I, I think that that when you're when you're wearing stuff like that, that, you're giving a really clear indication that that your political identity has superseded the other parts of your identity. Uh, and, and when that becomes true, it it becomes very very difficult to get past that and look for other types of commonality in life. So I and I think that the way that uh, that sports has become a, a one of the central sites of the culture war uh is is indicative of the split um where it is more and more important for people on both sides of the political divide to feel like their uh their literal teams um are on their figurative team. Um, And I think that it becomes a branding issue then for, uh, for these, these sports organizations, because you're trying to make both sides happy. Um, and I don't think there's any way to make both sides happy in America right now. And there's, and there's no desire from either side to just put politics aside. Um, because both sides for different reasons, view that view, you know, the, the, the urging to put politics aside as is as sort of a, a an attack on them personally. Um so I, I think you end up in a in a very difficult situation um if you are if you're trying to to build a community around something that's that is uh nominally non-political because nothing's non-political.
0: One. Well, so sort of I wonder, I mean I- <laughs> I don't study fans, but I go back and forth on this because Nathan, I'm I'm thinking of your tweet. I guess it was earlier today that got a fair bit of traction where it was sort of saying like, I wonder how much the pandemic has like altered people's sort of relationship with sports. And like a lot of people were commenting on it and like sharing it and sort of like sharing their experiences. And granted it was probably, you know, probably pretty a left leaning community that was responding. But, you know, I am sort of wondering is like at the end of this sort of what the the, the the draw of fans or sort of what the the composition of sports fans will even be like at the end of this. And maybe I'm too sort of hopeful that sort of people would be questioning what's going on and really questioning it and sort of questioning whether they should be following, whether it's college football or, or you know, the other sports that are still playing that are still harming their athletes and kind of doing all these things. Um So so I don't know, I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of curious, sort of how much people are going to keep up their fandom sort of once they really, as Amanda, as you said, once they really realize how intimately connected sports and politics are and sort of how that forces them to question what are they contributing to by continuing to be a fan. Yeah, I saw that
1: tweet and it's something that I have thought about a lot in the past couple months too, because I think the pandemic has really changed my relationship the sports, um, and, and my relationship with sports was already sort of in, in the slow process of changing. Um, but I, I have found it very difficult to watch college football in particular um, in, the, in the past several weeks. Uh, I still, you know, I still watch a little bit and I, and I am generally of the belief that it, it is not in the best interest of college football players for left leaning people to disengage with the sport. Uh, because if the if the only people left giving giving money to the schools or, or giving attention to the schools or people who uh, want things back to the you know the good old days, then I don't I don't think that that is beneficial in the long run to uh, to the people who play this sport. I think it, I think it's better if if left leaning people stay stay engaged and actively try to change. What, how the, the sport is conducted. Um, but I will say that it is, it is excruciating to watch people get hurt um, during all of this and know that like, they might have to go to the hospital and the hospitals are already, um, are already really overtaxed and that they might be exposed to the disease on top of getting hurt at this thing they don't get paid for. And that the injury and the disease that they contract because of it might ruin the rest of their lives. It is just like, it is impossible for me not to watch sports and think about that while I'm watching them. Um, and, you know, and, you know, if the pandemic ends and things go back to, to relatively normal in sports, I don't think that that feeling is going to leave me. I don't think that I will stop watching college football. Um, but it is... It is a lot less fun <laughs> um, and it was already less fun than it had been when I was a kid. Like the, the amount of, the amount of fun was already steadily declining mm. um, that I derived from it. Um, but like I said, I also don't think it's beneficial for the people who play the sport to the left-leaning people or people who want to see the sport change just to disengage with it entirely. I feel a sense of duty to the people who play college football um, to stick with them in some capacity.
0: Yeah, you know, I have to say, I I didn't think about it that way, just in the sense of, like, if sort of left-leaning fans leave, then sort of who's going to be the driving force to kind of affect change? Obviously, like, you know, athletes, you know, there are other people sort of we can point to, but I didn't quite think about it that way. And it, you know, it also made me think about the the sort of exodus uh, from Facebook of, like, you know right-wing people or people on the right and going to parlor or parlay i don't even know how to pronounce it but like if i've sort of been seeing people debated on 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 facebook sort of people that i'm like tangentially friends with on facebook from like high school or whatever and sort of like if they're leaving and they're going to like a, a site that's sort of wholly dedicated to giving them space to sort of share all their ideas um yeah that that's also sort of terrifying um but it, it is a similar vein to, to what you're talking about here
1: yeah, and I think that Facebook is a good example of, of what happens when, um, when, when a, a business realizes uh, what side its bread gets buttered on. Um, <laughs> uh, so Facebook knows that it is in its financial interest to, to serve right-wing reactionary conspiracy theorizing, misinformation, disinformation, uh, all of that. Uh, it makes money when that spreads. Um, it, it, it knows that its most engaged users are the people who want that. So I, I think that and I, I think that the same thing happens with college football if if there's an exodus of progressives out of out of the ranks of its fans because I, I think that in the past 10 years we have had some real success in pushing, Uh, some of the norms in college football left. I think that we have made a lot of progress on player compensation. I think that we have made a lot of progress on people understanding the NCAA as a fundamentally evil entity. I think that a lot has been done by progressive uh, college sports fans in the past decade to make the conditions under which players play better. Um, And I I think that... uh, that in order for players to exercise their power, they are going to need solidarity from a section of fandom. Uh, because that's, that's where the money comes from for universities, and that's ultimately how they understand the incentives to which they respond. Um, so uh, I worry what happens if people just totally disengage with it. Uh, who, who, if the people who want the sport to be better just leave... Um, I
2: don't think that helps the players ultimately. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a great insight. And as as Johanna said, that's a little like it's a slightly different spin on it than we've often been considering. Although I think probably on some level, like that is what we are trying to do. We may not be watching the games as fans, but I mean. (laughs) I'm watching my Twitter feed on Saturdays and it's filled with people who are watching the games. Uh, and I haven't excised those from my lab. I'm trying to add them, in fact, so that I kind of stay, stay attuned to what's happening. So I think that that's right. I, I agree with you. Um, I think that, 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 that if players organize and there's no one to act in solidarity with them, then um, you're right that the organizing is going to fall flat because they're going to be basically living the the hunger games. And the only people watching are people who are just (sighs) glorying in the spectacle of their destruction. Um, Now, okay. There's there's one last thing I want to end with here, because I kind of think it ties a lot of these themes together that we've been thinking about and sort of what we're all going to be thinking about and coping with moving forward. And that is... uh, College basketball, men's college basketball, women's college basketball, college basketball is about to start up again. It's not the only sport, but I bring it up because at the beginning of the pandemic in the United States, one of the first critical events in terms of the sports world was the cancellation of March Madness, right? And that sort of marked this fundamental change. When March Madness was canceled, it was like, wow, this is for real, right? Now, the NCAA is in dire economic straits and they rely on March Madness for their income. And so they're hell bent on running the event again. But it seems to me, and I really, the feeling kind of descended on me all the way today that we're exactly where we were, right? We're exactly where we were now, are now, where we are now is where we were in March, April at the time that they made that decision. And yet, instead of shutting it down, we're actually ramping up in the world of college basketball. I, I mean, I don't exactly know what to do with that, but I, it seems really disturbing to me. Um, college football is falling apart right now, and yet we're trying to start up with college basketball. This question is, it's about that, but it's also really, what do you see needing to happen? Like, where do we go in terms of the pandemic, right? Like, what is this winter going to look like? What do you hope for? Is there, is there room for hope that we are not going to see 100,000 plus more people in the United States die? Or is that, is that almost an inevitability at this point?
1: Oh, man, that's a question I'm going to have to give an answer to that I don't like. Um, But I I think that, and you you got at this earlier, but I I think that we have already baked in a certain amount of suffering that we're not going to, that we can't turn the ship on at this point. Um, Because the, the way, one of the hardest things to um, To sort of get people to understand, in the pandemic, has been the data lag. So you find out about new cases when those people have already been infected for you know several days, up to a week. Um, and then it takes the the disease progression. Uh, it takes you know ten days from uh, from diagnosis to hospitalization, let's say. And then it takes another twelve days from hospitalization to death. And then it takes a little bit of time before those deaths are reported as COVID deaths publicly. So so you get this real like sort of the suffering comes in waves. So if you see, you know, however many new cases we have today, I'm not even sure. Over a hundred thousand, I'm pretty sure. If you see those today, they we've already baked in suffering a month from now. Um so it is, uh, in order to, to see improving results, you have to, you have to turn the ship, you know, a month ahead of time. Um, so I, I think that we probably are going to see another hundred thousand bucks. Um, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't see anything on the horizon that, that suggests that we turn the ship before that. And, and I think that it, it's hard to compare now to March because, in March, things were primarily really bad in New York and New Jersey, in Connecticut. You know, the tri-state area was hit where I am. It was hit really, really, really hard. Um, but a lot of other places had a slightly easier time of it. Um, and then you, uh, and then in the the Sun Belt surge over the summer, you got Arizona and Texas uh, that were hit really, really, really hard again. And then Florida, and Georgia, were hit really hard. And Texas was probably the most New York like of them. Uh, but it didn't get quite so bad there as it was here. Uh, and, and then now you're looking at the country and there are just New York's developing all over the place. Um uh, in, in lots of different parts of the country. And there is little, little being done on the governmental level to turn that around. Um, and you have to turn it around now if you want it to be better in six weeks. You can't mm-hmm. make six weeks better in six weeks. Um, you have to, you have to start doing it now. Um, and just nobody's doing it. <laughs> um, nobody's doing anything. Um, so, and, and I think that, uh, that, you know, the people who are putting on March Madness are to a certain extent uh, taking advantage of the fact that we, that a lot of people have just gotten really numb to what's going on, have gotten really, mm-hmm. uh, you know, personally numb to it because a brand new threat and i, I wrote an article uh, a couple of weeks ago about how people understand fear and how people change the definitions of mm-hmm. safety and like a, a brand new threat where you don't know you don't know what it is you don't know where I might be coming from you don't know what to think of it you don't know what your personal risk is people react really really strongly to that they panic they uh probably overreact in some situations they um uh, they look for ways to protect themselves. And, but then over time is, as, as people sort of have more time and more information to evaluate that risk. Um, some of them are going to, are going to take signals from people who don't have their best interest at heart. Some people are just going to, to get confused and get overwhelmed and just decide to be optimistic. Um, some people are going to decide that because nothing bad has happened to them or their immediate family, that nothing bad will happen to them or their immediate family. Um, just because that's the, that's the easier thing to wrap your head around than this constant continued vigilance and this confusion in leadership that's happening. Um, so you, you get an environment in which more people are dying. The situation is more dangerous. The situation is, uh, is not improving. Nobody's really doing anything to improve it. There, there are no, there's no help coming on the horizon and people are like, well, let's just do more tremendous anyway. You know why not? Um, And and I don't I don't know that there's anything that I see that is going to effectively combat that kind of complacency in the near future.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you know, I was scrolling Twitter before we recorded, and I, and I saw your tweets about that piece. And so I was thinking, like, oh, I definitely need to read that. So we will absolutely link it in the show notes. Um, but Amanda, thank you so so much for coming on with us tonight. This was such a like an, such an intellectually stimulating conversation. It really was such a joy for us to have you on and sort of hear your really amazing insights about election politics in Georgia, also Alabama, um, and then sort of how you see these things connect um, with sports. And it was just wonderful to have.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. I really enjoyed it.